Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, I'm Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number nine. Today, I'll be interviewing Nina G., who is a comedian, professional speaker, storyteller, writer, and educator. She brings her humor to help people confront and understand disability culture, access, and empowerment. Nina G. was the only woman who stuttered in the stand-up comedy world when she started nine years ago. She co-produced the Comedians with Disabilities Act, a national touring comedy show featuring exclusively exclusively comedians with disabilities. She also produced the first album to feature disabled comedy only. Nina's brand of comedy reflects the experiences of many with disabilities. She tours the country as a conference keynote speaker, including at a TEDx talk at San Jose State University. She has a doctorate in psychology and teaches at a Bay Area community college. She is also author of the book, Once Upon an Accommodation, and she also has a book coming out very soon in August, and she's going to be talking about that as well, which is very exciting. So I also encourage you to look at, to look at her website because Nina has a ton of information, and I just want to make sure to mention it here because I don't want to forget that she has a free download workbook for the children's book that she's, that she's published, Once and Upon Accommodation. So for more information, visit her website at ninagcomedian.com. And also check out her videos. She's got some great videos um, on YouTube, and she's just so inspirational. So, Nina, I am so excited to have you today on the podcast to answer some of the questions because I think that you're you're so inspiring on so many different levels because you're all the stuff that I've ever seen, not only just with the books, but also just in the videos and your social media, you're just, you know, you're very inspiring. And I think you really help people to overcome some of their challenges. So I'm just really excited. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is her children's book, which I had reviewed back in well, when I reviewed it, I think it was like 2014. I have to look back, but it was published in 2013. And, but I still think that all of the, the book is very relevant to today. So I wanted, Nina, if you could talk a little bit about your book and your mission behind it. And the book is called Once and Upon an Accommodation. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great working with you all these years. I'm so glad to have had the book reviewed years ago by you and now revisiting it now. So it's wonderful to see your development in in all of this too. So thank you for having me here. And uh, let's see, what did you ask about the book? Yeah, I just wanted to know more about, you know, your thoughts behind it and your mission behind writing it. I know it was a long time ago, but... You know, I know that some of those things just stick in your minds that you don't. I, yeah, because I think it's just such a relevant, it's such, it's such meaningful and relevant material in that book. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, there are so many reasons why I wanted to write that book. 
And a lot of it is because of my own experience as a person with a learning disability and who stutters is that there really is like when I was growing up in the 1980s and the 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of ways to know who you were and why you learned a certain way and what your rights were and how to advocate for those rights. And I always tell a story about how in the eighth grade, um, I, one of the uh, accommodations I had was that I got to do every other problem for my math test for like my math homework and my English homework. And halfway through the term, I went up to my teacher and I was like, so what's my grade? And they're like, well, you're getting an F. And I'm all, hey, I've been doing all this work. What are you talking about? And they're like, oh no, you have been doing half the work. Oh my God. Talking about. (sighs) And they were grading me based on 100% instead of on 50%. And So that's how I got that grade. And needless to say, I was very angry about that. And, you know, when you're in the eighth grade, it's not like you verbalize this stuff in a very functional way. And so I would go to the bathroom constantly back then. Like I'd spent, you know, especially if I had to read out loud because a stuttering dyslexic does not like to read out loud when they're in the eighth grade. And so I would escape to the bathroom all the time. And then there was this one day when one of my cousins who was in the class with me came and she had the teacher's coffee cup and she was supposed to get the teacher water. And that's when it occurred to me like, hey, why don't you put some toilet water in the coffee cup? And so we went over, we dunked it in, put a little bit of toilet water in there. And then we filled the rest up with water and I got to go back to class and watch her drink toilet water, which I oh my God. felt so empowering. So empowering. And the message here is, is that we need to educate kids to advocate in a better way so that we don't have our teachers drinking toilet water like mine did, because I really <laughs> felt like I didn't have a voice and that we need to very, be very mindful and very deliberate about how we teach kids how to be advocates and Luckily, in the U.S. at least, there are youth leadership forums that are in Wyoming and Montana and California and Florida. And they are awesome because kids go to a camp and they learn how to be advocates. And that was the very thing that I needed to have was to find a way to have my voice be heard because it wasn't being heard when I was doing it. And when you have a disability as a kid, it's like you feel like you're the only one. And so that is partially why I wrote this book was because kids need to develop their voice and adults do too. And part of my work in community college is as a counselor in a disabled student office. And the 504 process, the the book, Once Upon an Accommodation, I should say what it's about, It is about a person, Matt, who learns that he has a learning disability from a psychologist, and he learns what that means, and 
what a 504 is. And I went with a 504 instead of an IEP because 504 really encompasses everybody who has an accommodation yeah. in K-12 mm-hmm. and when they get to college, when they go for their doctorate, whatever it is, it's a 504 because that is the civil rights law that is going to protect them for most of their life. And I want them to get to know that law. And so he learns about that and learns how to advocate in the workbook, which is online free to everybody, but it's also in the book is helping the kid develop that voice of I have a disability or a difference, whatever they want to call it. And the accommodations I need are this and my strengths are this because I think a lot of times, I mean, you've probably been in, in, in an IEP or a 504 where it's like, okay, the kid is good at this, this, and this. Now let's spend three hours talking about the things. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Improve that because For me, you know, it's my ability to listen and my ability to translate things in a way that people understand. That is what I'm skilled at. That isn't anything that we talked about when I was in eighth grade and my parents were advocating for my accommodation and you know really focusing in on those strengths as well as that advocacy piece you know the kid is you know it's just like with my speech some days I'm more fluent and today is a more fluent day other days I'm not and what's been more important than my fluency is my ability uh, ability to advocate and to tell people like, you know what, you need to be quiet right now because I'm trying to finish a sentence and knowing that the problem isn't within me, but in a society that isn't always accepting of people like me. And hopefully the book starts, uh, starts to help kids and parents and teachers and professionals look at it in a different way. Yeah, I think that's so important because I think one of the best things we could do for our kids and um, is just be able to tell them also what their accommodations are. Because I think a lot of times the kids, because I do work with older kids, I work with middle schoolers and I work with high school students as well. And I think sometimes a lot of kids don't actually know what their accommodations are. And they think that it's the teacher that she's going to automatically give them the accommodations. So what I think is so important, like what I think the book brings up really nicely is just to talk about what are your accommodations and how could you access them? Because I think also some kids are, they could be embarrassed to access some of the accommodations. So I think it's a really good idea to talk about it before and to say, okay, let's say an accommodation is to take a movement break. And so, you know, like, let's just say, like I was talking to a child and saying, well, how can we initiate a movement break? You may not raise your hand and say, I need a movement break. Or maybe I could say, you know what? I need to just go take a quick walk or I need to go to the bathroom and I'll be right back. And so that's a nice way to kind of access that accommodation without, let's say, saying in a way that I need a movement break. Um, so that's and that's what I've seen a lot is that I've seen a lot of times where kids don't they don't they either don't know what the accommodation is or they're not accessing the accommodations or they're not initiating the accommodations. So it's I know because we have like these meetings, you have IEP meetings, you have 504 meetings. Um 
But a lot of times the kids, I guess as they get older, they should be part of the meetings. But one of the things that sometimes we don't share is we don't share the information with the child. Like, what are yeah. your accommodations? Which seems kind of like the most obvious thing, but it's not sometimes because let's say the kids are not there at the meetings. And then so everyone is setting up a plan for them. And what's kind of ironic at the end is sometimes when the child themselves doesn't know the plan. So it's, I, you know, I think, I think it's just important what you were saying. It's just as far as them advocating, because, you know, even when I used to teach graduate classes, I had students in my class that would come up to me and I would say, listen, I had it in my slide. If you have an accommodation, you know, just see me after class and tell me just so I'm aware. Yes. And those students that came up to me and they, you know, they advocate for themselves. I need extra time. I, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And, and it was, you know, and, that's, I think it's a process and it's a journey because those students did very well because they knew what they needed. So I think it could start really young, you know? Really uh, young, yeah. yeah. And, and that is where, e even if they're five years old, to teach them like one piece of advocacy and to build on that and to add on that because when they get to be in the workplace, and that's the thing is that I've always had teachers say, well, it's not like they're going to get these when they're in the workplace. I was like, no, you're wrong. They totally will. That's why we need to have them understand what they need now and eventually translate that into the workplace. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's a great point. So I want to know a little bit about your journey in becoming a stand-up comedian, because I just think public speaking is so scary for so many people, regardless of, you know, if you have a disability or difference or not. And I'm just so fascinated because I think stand-up comedy is so, like, I'll be so scared. Like, <laughs> I think it's so, it's probably one of, like, really... I think you just have to be very brave to get up there. And to, I, I'm just really, I'm inspired by you. So I would like to know a little bit more about your journey into becoming a stand-up comedian. Uh, well, the journey starts when I was four years old because when I was a kid, I just, I really, um, co comedy really clicked with me. And when I was four years old, that's when Steve Ma Martin was super big. Um, and you know, it through his head kind of stuff. And then um, when I was eight, I discovered Saturday Night Live and I would stay up late and watch the reruns. And I became a big fan of G Gilder Radners. And I even had like a little um, stuffed animal that I named after her like it was a big thing and then as I got a little bit older in my mom and dad they never censored what I watched on tv and we had cable so I got to see all kinds of comedians growing up and my parents were also fans of comedy like my mom my mom would always have these special days that she would keep me home from the, home from school because she knew it was so hard on me and we would just play hooky and go to the movies and one time when I was nine she brought me to see Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip oh, and, so, uh. and and like and, and, and my mom now is a little bit embarrassed about that but she's also like you know he talked about life and and his life back then and I'm like and I and I told her, I'm all like, that was probably the best drug education you could have given me is to bring me to see that set um, at, at the matinee on a Thursday. 
keeping me home from school. So there were those things in my life that I just learned to love comedy. And when I was 11 years old, I decided that I wanted to be a comedian. And, you know, I would write jokes down as I got a little bit older. When I was like 15, 16, I would call up open mics. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to get up on stage and I'm going to do it. But I'd never seen anybody who talked like me do stand-up comedy. And so I just never thought that it would be possible. So I eventually just let the dream die. Um, And my love of comedy never died. Like when I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper on Lenny Bruce and Groucho Marx and their impact on their culture and, and, and things like that. So it was always in me and I always still loved it, but I never, but, but that dream of being a comedian died. But then when I was, let's see, I was the, the 35 when I attended a conference for people who stuttered. And when I was there, it just, it had such an impact on me. And it was at the, na- the national stuttering uh, association. And what I realized there was how much space I relinquished up to other people. And, you know, there's a thing when you stutter, people interrupt you all the time. They'll just start to fill in your word and it gets very frustrating because they don't know what you're going to say. And then it starts getting into a guessing game. But what I realized at that conference was how I was self-interrupting that I would hold back in a conversation because I didn't want to want to put my stutter onto somebody else and how that process interrupted my wishes and my dreams, my relationships, my participation in life. And I think what really made an impact on me was seeing other women at the conference who stutter because I think women generally, we keep ourselves kind of small and we don't take up space, especially in certain conversations where we defer to the man. And I realized how much I was deferring to everybody in in conversation and not taking up that space. And so when I came back from the conference and I stepped off the plane at my home in Oakland, California, I was like, I'm going to start to reclaim that space. And I started to make changes in my life to reflect that. And one of those changes came about six months after the conference where I decided that I would try to stand up comedy. And that was nine and a half years ago. So I'm coming up on my 10th year doing comedy and um, in realizing my dream, which seems like, you know, it's I go do comedy three, four times a week. Um, and I love it. And it's, and it's, you know, comedy can wear on you, especially as a woman, uh, because there's so much sexism in a lot of comedian sets and you have to sit through a lot of horrible jokes. And so you really have to love it. So I apparently really love it. So I've been doing it for so long now. Wow. So could you, could you give some advice to parents of children who stutter and let's say about about public speaking, just any advice that you could give to parents, like if their child is worried about public speaking and they have a stutter, what, what, what advice would you give them? 
Um, so I think there's two things there. One is kind of the longer term thing, which I want to address, which is finding community is such a key part of this. And like my parents uh, were always super supportive and my dad is hard of hearing. So I kind of feel like I got to learn how to be disabled from my dad, even though we didn't have the same thing. There is still that same experience. And for example, my dad, when he coached me on my seventh grade girls softball team, he, 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 he announced to all the girls on the first day, he's all, listen, I'm deaf and you're just going to have to speak up when you talk to me. And I remember being horrified that he would be talking about that in front of girls and, you know, in front of this team. And I looked around and I remember nobody cared. Like it wasn't a big thing. And I was like, oh, people don't care. That's interesting. And now when I self-disclose, it feels very much in that same spirit as my dad of, listen, I stutter and you're just going to have to wait for all the brilliant things that I have to say. And that's how I usually disclose. And so teaching your kid to not be ashamed and helping them to find community too, because community for me has been the key thing. People who stutter, we're only 1% of the population. And people who have dyslexia, we are whoa, 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 one in five. So even though there's a lot more of us that have dyslexia, it's not like we have a community or like a coffee shop or something like that of people who have dyslexia, which would be really cool if there was. But there's not. And so we don't have those opportunities to have those conversations of like, if, if you stutter, what's it like to order at a drive through and the anxiety that that causes and what's it like to talk on the phone and what's it like to use Siri and have it mess up on you because you stutter on the thing you say. And, to, and then there are conferences for kids who stutter. There's friends, which is, a once a year conference, but then they also have lo local events too. There's also TWIST, which is part of the Na National Stuttering uh, Association. There's also SAY, which mixes dr drama and theater into, into self-expression for kids who stutter. So there's lots of ways for kids to find someone who is like them. And what's super cool is that they can see an adult who's like them, who isn't fluent, who is stuttering the heck out of words. And that's okay, because for me, the people who are always held up as the high esteem pe people who stutter were ones who you didn't always see stutter in public. And it kind of gives a message like, well, you can do whatever you want to do, just make sure you're fluent. And we need to show kids that that isn't true and that they can do those things. Now, in terms of giving a speech, there are some key things that I feel as a person who stutters that I like to do. And one is I disclose at the onset, like I said, uh, I, I stutter and you're just going to have to wait for all the brilliant things that I have to say. I say that on job interviews. I say that when 
I am a participant in a group and it's my way of not downgrading it and not saying, oh, so, so sorry, I talk like this. Instead, it is, I know that my ideas are worthy to contribute and you need to shut up and let me talk. So there are those two components there. And so I think it's very helpful to find your way to disclose. And if they are going to give a speech, if they give a speech on how to talk to a person who stutters, that is amazing. And they will get an A on that because that's going to be a very insightful speech and will help them to understand what that process is, but also to educate everybody too. And I think the other part of it is to give a speech on something that you love because you're more motivated to work on it and to really express yourself in, in the ways that are going to be helpful and they're going to be authentic to what you're trying to convey. Yeah, I think that's so all the stuff you've mentioned. I mean, your parents being so supportive, finding community, you know, for the kids as well as the parents. And is there any other advice that you would have, let's say for a parent of like a younger child who stutters that just any sort of, you know, advice that you have of that you think is, you've already shared so much, so much mm-hmm. advice, but anything else that you would share for parents kind of going um, through, you know, all the different options for their child? You know, as you said that, the thing that really stuck out to me was having parents, and this almost like chokes me up and I don't know why, but having parents educate other family members because family members don't always understand it. And sometimes you need to put, you know, like, Uncle Philip in line because they are telling the kid to just slow down and think about what they're going to say. And if you can say, you know, Uncle Philip, that doesn't really work. And in fact, they know what they're going to say. And you just need to shut up and let them say it. And you see somebody, the most powerful things for me have been when Oh, and let me share this story, even though it's more on dyslexia. But when I was in the the third grade um, and I was just uh, diagnosed with a learning disability, my teachers, you know, didn't think I would do very much. And they resented that they had to do things in a different way with me. And my mom, what she did was she got a letter from she got a letter from UC Berkeley which was our local college and that's also a place where the disability rights move movement was very very big there and she got a letter from the college saying if there is a student with a learning disability these are the kinds of accommodations that they would be expected to have when they went to school here and things like books on tape, which now it's on the computer, but back then it was on tape and extra time on tests and blah, 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 blah. And my mom brought that letter to my third grade teacher and was like, look at this. You think she's not going to be able to do very much, but she could go to UC Berkeley if she wanted to. 
And the teacher was like, yeah, right. Good luck with that. We're not going to give your kid less, less, less homework, even though it takes her three hours and she's eight years old. She has to do everything that everyone else does. And but what my mom did, even though that act of getting that letter didn't work on the teacher, she folded it up and put it in a drawer next to all the savings bonds I got for my first communion and my social security card all the important documents of my life. And she had it there for years and years and years. And every once in a while, I would look at it. And, oh God, I'm I'm crying uh, a little bit here. And um, when I went to community college and I was looking for schools, I ended up going to UC Berkeley because that is the place where it was in, it, it was a seed from that time where the teachers didn't believe in me, but my mom did. And I had proof of that every time that I looked in that drawer. And that's the kind of thing that I think parents can do is, you know, if, if, if you got to cuss out Uncle Philip in front of everybody, that's going to make a big impact <laughs> on your kid. And, um, and my mom gave him the gave, gave my teachers the finger with that Berkeley thing <laughs> and, um, in, a, in, in a figurative way of course um, and that's what I think parents may sometimes have to do and to do it in front of your kid really makes an impact on them I think that's such a good point because I think it just shows the power of how important to have that, you know, the parent support and also the parent believing in their child that yes. they will go through anything to make sure that they could be successful. And if you're, pa- you know, as a parent, if you believe in your child, that they could achieve anything. I even say that just about, you know, I work with a lot of children and adults with, you know, more multiple disabilities. And one of the things that I always say to my students that are teaching a class is that, you know, Kids will only, and that's kind of like, I think for, for anybody, people will only give you what you expect. And if you expect, if you expect, you know, the most and you expect like exactly what you think that person could give you, they will meet that expectation. And if you empower them and you believe in them, they're going to give that back to you and they're going to show you what they could do. And that's exactly what the research says, is that if you have low expectations, kids will reach those low expectations, but they won't go past that. If you raise the expectations, they may not meet those super high expectations, but they'll get further along. Exactly. And kids, you know what? They know when a teacher believes in them. Oh, you know, I mean, even also as an adult, if you go to a workplace and someone doesn't expect a lot and they don't empower you to do your best, then I think even as an adult, you may not meet the same expectations that you would meet if, if like, let's say you had somebody that was empowering you and really felt that you could, you know, really meet those expectations that they were setting for you. So I think it's just kind of overall human nature that we yeah. need to empower each other. We need to believe in each other. And one of the things, you know, just, I always with my, even with the, when I'm working with kids and telling them, I believe in you, I know that you could do this. I know that you could do it. So show me, show me that you could do it. And they do. So important. Yeah. So it's just such an important thing. And I think it's 
it's just important, you know, not just in therapy or in schools. I just think life itself, it's so important. You know, I mean, I can't say that enough because I pretty much repeat that anytime I'm teaching. And even during, let's say, IEP meetings, I'll even talk about that as well, about how much if we, you know, this is what, you know, I tell the kids, like, I know that they could do it. I know they can, you know, they could communicate with me and whatever the goals that I have for them. And they do because they know that I believe in them. So it's, it's just, it's such a powerful message. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which I'm really excited to hear about your new book coming out in August. And I'd love for you to talk about that because I think all the stuff that you've talked about kind of leads up to this amazing book that is going to be released in August. Yes, August 6th is my memoir, which comes out, which is called Stutter Interrupted, the comedian who almost didn't happen. And you kind of already had the thesis here, which is that the interruptions from other people, as much as those suck, the self-imposed interruptions that I've had on myself and having to unlearn those are really what's been more of a barrier. And I think a lot of times people think the disability is the barrier. And I don't feel that I've overcome stuttering. I don't feel that I've overcome learning disabilities. What I have overcome are the jerks that I've had in my life and the continued jerks that I have in my life who say and do things that are sometimes meant to put me down or just insensitive or the things that I have internalized. And as much as you work on yourself, there's things that you have internalized, they come up and you just don't know when they're going to come up. So it's good to understand those because when those ghosts come back to haunt you, you're better able to address them. That's great. And I also, I just, I love when you were talking about that word self-interrupted. And I think that it's, you kind of like stopped yourself. Do you think that's a term just for stuttering? Or do you feel like that could also be a term used for other people who may not want to, they know what they want to communicate, but they kind of stop themselves because of whatever reason it is that they don't want to share something. Because I think that's such a good term that you used. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think for people who stutter, it is acted out every single day when we, you know, when we go to Starbucks and and you say your name and they laugh at you or they make fun of you or they do something like for us that um, interruption part is always kind of on the table. But I think for everybody, there are times when we've interrupted ourselves and. I think women, especially, sometimes we hold back, you know, it's a matter of a lot of times when I'm in a group of young women, I will hear a young woman say, oh, I really, you know, well, what this other person said, yes, I, I do understand where they're coming from, but I would also add this as well. We're like, we're not we always have to build on somebody else instead of just coming out with our uh, own opinions. And I know that that's changing, but I still think that there are ways that women are socialized to self-interrupt and, and and men are too. Like, I'm not going to, 
you know, say that, that, that this is only a female issue. I think there's a lot of ways that people have told us that we have to act and we have to do things in a certain way. And those things interrupt us in our self-expression and our, in the things that we do in the world and some of the developmental steps that we may want to take in life changes that, that feel right to us, but we may not fully carry out. And a lot of that is because there's this one thing that we have, whether it's a stutter or dyslexia or autism or whatever it is that might be the thing that kind of puts puts a wedge in it because of how we look at that thing. But if we can reframe what that thing is, and for example, there's a theory, and you probably know it being a speech and language the, the therapist, it's from Joseph Sheehan, who said that stuttering is like an iceberg, because what you see at the very tip of the iceberg is the stutter, but then underneath that is shame and doubt and fear and uh, isolation, which as a person who stutters, those things have always been something that I've had to deal with. But icebergs are kind of a lot like clouds in the sky, that if you look at a cloud one way, it may look like a dragon, but from another, it could look like a cute little bunny rabbit. It's still the same cloud, only your perspective has changed. And I think if we look at our stuttering icebergs in a different way, that that fear can turn to courage and that shame can turn to self-acceptance and pride. And isolation can turn to community, but all that takes a lot of work to find ways to reframe those things in your life that you've learned to hate that you can make friends with. Well, I think that you've helped a lot of people. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine how many people that have sat with you and not felt really inspired to, you know, kind of try their best and to, you know, work through some of the difficult times that they've had. And well, well, just to to interrupt you there, I did a show last night and the audience did not feel me at all. So there's, there, there are some people who have not gotten that. So I encourage everyone to come out to my shows so that you can um, tell everybody that it, that, that it is okay to laugh and that we can lo- look at these things because sometimes I think audiences are very scared to go there. Um, and I kind of have fun with, with, with that challenge. So, But I really appreciate your words there, though. Well, I have to come to one of your shows. And you have all that information on your website and also on your Facebook page as well. Right. Like all your gigs that you're and mostly do you perform mostly in because I know you're in California and mostly in California or all over the country. Um, I it's it's a mix of both. I mean, California, that is like every week I have a show and they're not all family friendly shows. So if I do a show in a library, which I'm going to be doing a lot of because of the book tour, uh, that that will most likely be very family friendly. friendly if you come to a dive bar that's not going to be family (laughs) there anyway but just just a heads up there um 
but I do a lot of colleges and a lot of nonprofits. And so when I do those, it's much more, it goes much more into my story, which I really have fun with. And, and I really appreciate because, um, a lot of the things that we talked about here, not really, you know, things that you talk about at a dive bar, uh, on a Saturday night at 12 a.m. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited. I have to definitely go to one of your shows and I can't wait to read your book. So I'm, I'm excited for that. So anything else you want to add before we finish up? Uh, no, just the, thank you so much for um, having me on. And this has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, because it's been a great conversation for me also. I was so excited to set this up and to talk to you about so many things that you're doing. So thank you for listening today. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime. Time.